the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme... It's a transformational moment for the Defence Forces because in the same way that the aftermath of the Civil War had seen the Defence Forces in this precipitous decline, you have the same situation happen after the Second World War. I'll be joined by Owen Kinsella, author of a new book on the history of the Irish Defence Forces to look at the first few decades of the armed forces in independent Ireland. Also, Robert Tressel and his influential novel, The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. A Tressel was a key tool, mm. the Tressel table, of a painter and decorator, which is how he described himself. So trying to give himself a pseudonym that would have relevance to what he was writing about. Mary Muldowney on An Overlooked Irish Writer. But we begin this evening with The Silent Civil War. That's the two-part series currently airing on RTE1 television in which a group of historians and archivists seek out first-hand testimonies from family members of the people involved in the Irish Civil War between 1922 and 1923. Grandad never spoke about it. Even Mam said he'd never talk about either of the wars because it was too painful. They lost too many friends, family splits. Very hard very difficult. Civil war will not be talked about in this household. I would interpret that as my granda had misgivings about what had gone on in the civil war. I'm joined now by historian Liz Gillis, one of the contributors and interviewers in the documentary. Liz, you're very welcome back to the History Show. How are you, Miles? In episode one, which aired on Wednesday last, Dr. Christor McCarthy, the director of the National Folklore Collection, gives us the mission statement. There's still a gap in the collection when it comes to Civil War memory. That gap can be filled with the inherited memories of the family and neighbours of people involved. Did you find that there were still a lot of memories to be mined out there? Uh, a lot that were as yet unrecorded. Oh yeah, definitely. And the hope is that once the programme airs, more people realise that there is a need to get those stories recorded. In the whole collection at the moment, there's over 80 interviews, like we did over 80 interviews, and then there was more that were done previously. So there's 80 people that participated with their stories to tell of their relatives, be they participants or civilians. It's a whole range of stories. So yeah, I suppose people are a little bit cautious. So if you had to reassure people you know we do want these stories and they're so valuable to get them to record them because this literally is the last chance to hear the stories of people who are directly connected to those who took part or who lived at that time once once they saw that there was an interest they talked thankfully they talked and yeah this is the tip of the iceberg really it's not the end of the project it really is the beginning of the project and my hope would be that more people will come forward because we have so much information of the more famous people but there are so many stories of the ordinary men and women as in combatants on both sides but also the civilian experience because we would all have a relative who lived at that time who did pass down a story so yeah please come forward with your stories one of the stories that you look at is that of Tommy O'Leary, who was an anti-treaty IRA man who was killed during the Civil War. Tell us what 
new material did you find out about Tommy O'Leary? Well, the story of Tommy, I didn't know about the girl who was the last person to see Tommy apart from the people who killed him. And her son, Paddy O'Reilly, I was privileged to interview Paddy about the real sense of loss that she felt. And that would have been felt up and down this country at that time because although she herself was not involved, she would have been friends with these people. And the fact that it happened on a main thoroughfare, you know, that I've walked up and down many, many times. I've actually walked past the memorial many, many times, but you you don't see it. It's just there, part of the, the scenery. But then you have the other side, which is his nephew and the way his nephew felt about his activities and, you know, his involvement in the movement in the Civil War and, and very honest about the type of activities that Tommy was involved in, um, himself and Bobby Bonfield were very active. And then that then connects to the documents that they had in the military archives. When you see those those captured documents and you see what the anti-treaty IRA were planning to do against the National Army um, and that list of the license plates where they actually had identified touts or informers, people that were informing on them. And the word goes out, if you see these license plates, if you see these people, they're to be dealt with. This happens in the latter part of the Civil War and it just shows the escalation of it. But what I was fascinated by and what really hit you is the human cost of this, not just immediately to the the people, the victims, but it is the ripple effect on the families down through the generations. And when Paddy O'Reilly just said that about his mum, like just this, this sense of loss of that generation and how they feel, how she felt about people getting involved in these types of movements because she knew from her own experience what people will lose if they go down that road of political violence. The assumption is that he was killed, that Tommy O'Leary was killed by an assassination squad from the infamous Oriel House. And when it comes to family memories from the other side of the conflict, you talked to Brian Hand, grandson of Liam Tobin, who is obviously very closely identified with Oriel House. Yeah, well, he'd been instrumental in setting up Oriel House. And Oriel House, it was such a place of horror that the anti-treaty IRA themselves tried to, to blow it up. There was an attack on Oriel House. But again, it was brilliant. This this project has been fantastic in opening up the narrative because for a long time there has been one narrative that has dominated and it is those of the anti-treaty IRA who were killed in custody or, you know, picked up off the street and their bodies are found dumped, you know, all over. But there has been a lot of silence in relation to the other side, as in the National Army side and the soldiers who were killed, um, not in battle. You know, it's, it doesn't happen in battle. A lot of soldiers were killed in awful circumstances. So this has provided that opportunity to balance the narrative a little bit. But Brian was fantastic because he was very honest about his grandfather's role in setting up Oriel House and the reality of what Oriel House was. It was not a nice place to be. And I suppose when speaking to people like Brian Hand or Dave Phelan, who had relatives that were based in Oriel House or were working in Oriel House, 
what they're saying when they're talking about this stuff to us is that it's not their war, but they have to get those stories out. You know, we have this information, let's get out and we can have these discussions now from all sides and try to understand how it descended into such madness and chaos and bitterness. It's really hard to understand how people who are so close could actually do that type of thing to each other. But, you know, when you think of like Collins's death, that's a, a blanket moment that changes the nature. There's these moments that happen and then something awful happens in response to that. And I keep saying it and I've said it again, and I keep saying it, we can't justify those actions because we know they're wrong. But I think we just have to understand how something like that can happen and try to get into that mindset and try to be brought back to that period and talking to the relatives, talking to those who had that connection to those who lived at that time helps us do that. Finally, in the second episode, we're going to hear some of the recordings of a man called Harlan Strauss. He's an American who happened to have been a PhD student in 1972, and he recorded dozens of interviews with prominent uh, living revolutionaries way back then, over 50 years ago. Yeah, and I had been made aware of Harlan through um, Jim Dolan, who Harlan actually interviewed Jim's dad. And this was in relation to the custom house. That's how I had heard about it. So what was great about Harlan is that although he made contact with, say, more famous or more well-known people like Sean Dowling and, you know, say, officers within the ranks of the IRA, he also talked to the rank and file members like Joseph Dolan and others. So he got a whole range of stories. And the beauty of Harlan doing that when he did was that he was an outsider. So it was a safe person for them to talk to because he had no connection to the events that they were talking about. Now, looking back at the Civil War time, do you think the war could have been avoided? Yes. I think it was disastrous. And uh, unnecessary. And sometimes, you know, it is hard for people to talk to their families about what they were involved in. But here was an outsider who just wanted to know. It's a safe set of ears, really. And he recorded them and kept them. Thank God he kept them. I don't know if Harlan, you know, thought that when he was recording those interviews, the legacy of those interviews and the impact of those interviews that they would have today and the treasure trove that they are, because they are the voices of the participants. And what we have now 50 years later is the children or relatives of some of those who are actually interviewed, which is amazing. It's, it's bringing the two generations together again. Liz, thanks very much for talking to us about the project to record the memoirs and uh, this important two-part series. You can catch up on the first episode of The Silent Civil War now on the RTE Player. The second episode will be on RTE One Television this Wednesday, the 3rd of May at 9.35pm. Liz Gillis, thanks very much for talking to us. Thanks a million, Miles. Next, we're looking at a new book from Four Courts Press, The Irish Defence Forces, 1922-2022, to 2022, Servants of the Nation. 
This comprehensive history appeared at a time when the defence forces are very much in the news, though not for positive reasons after the Independent Review Group highlighted allegations of past and current misogyny and abuse. Over the decades, the Defence Forces have remained something of an enigma to the public, one of the most frequently discussed yet least understood elements of the public sector and of Irish foreign policy. Yet, the Defence Forces have a long history whose origins lie in the formation of the Irish Volunteers in 1913 and the political and military revolution that preceded the emergence of the Irish Free State in 1922. Earlier, I spoke to the author of the book, Dr Owen Kinsella of the Royal Irish Academy, to talk about the first few decades of our armed forces' existence. The book opens with the first regular unit of the Irish Army marching through Dublin on the way to Beggar's Bush Barracks. Now, to tech contemporaries, they were still usually referred to as the IRA. Can you describe the transition from the IRA to the Irish Defence Forces? It's a difficult one. The split that happens politically across the country in terms of the opposition or support for the treaty is reflected in the IRA. And in fact, you argue that the majority of the IRA that would have seen out the War of Independence chose to support the anti-treaty side, which puts Richard Mulcahy, who's put in place as Minister for Defence and... Michael Collins and those, you know, the, the officers for the Defence Forces puts them in a difficult position. And it's in at the start of February when we see this first real steps towards the what becomes known as the National Army put in place. You see the first public funds put aside for the National Army and also the first payments are issued to personnel in the National Army. But the main point to be made, I suppose, is that there's no real fabric of organisation for this new army other than what already existed with the IRA. So much personnel recruitment is haphazard for the first six months up until June or July of 1922. They're not entirely sure what units they can rely upon. That becomes clearer, of course, as the split within the IRA uh, solidifies after March, after the the convention in the Mansion House in March 1922. Um, So there's enormous problems facing Mulcahy and his officers from a very, very early stage. And it's, I suppose, one of the great challenges of preparations for what becomes a civil war is to try and actually formalise what actually constituted the National Army. In fairness, they do a they do a pretty good job. I mean, one of the things they do is they recruit a lot of World War One veterans, Irish World War One veterans, with combat experience, and then they very very quickly begin a conventional war with an army, the bulk of which, or not the bulk of which, but certainly a, a significant percentage, about fifty percent of of which would only have an experience of guerrilla warfare. That's right. And it's that kind of recruitment, I suppose, very early on. When the when the Civil War breaks out, there's about 7,000 personnel in the National Army at that time. And that number very, very rapidly increases, especially after there's a national call to arms issued in the first week of July, after the battle for Dublin has, has concluded and the National Army has been victorious there. Those recruits, a lot of them have, like you said, First World War experience with the British Army. A lot of those had already been in the IRA already, and a lot of the more senior officers within the IRA had First World War experience. So... To be able to, I suppose, transform what they had into a relatively fit fighting force within a few months was a major organisational challenge and also one that was quite successful. But 
there's also accounts of sending men into battle, particularly for the Battle for Dublin, where they're being shown how to use a rifle in the truck on the way to the forecourts or on the way into the city centre. And that's replicated, I suppose, across the entire civil war. There's no time for training for these men. So you have an army which grows from 7,000 to 55,000 by early 1923 with very, very little training. And that brings its own issues, of course, as well in terms of discipline, but also in terms of combat effectivity. So to be able, I suppose, to have been able to prosecute the war the way they did was a challenge, but one that they relatively successfully met for most of the civil war. During the civil war, the National Army faced the prospect of an interminable costly, protracted conflict against forces skilled in guerrilla tactics, particularly after the end, within about four or five months of the the conventional phase of that war. In response, the state implicitly condoned the use of intimidation and of terror in its efforts to defeat the anti-treaty IRA. And now your book doesn't shy away from that. It delves into those incidents. I mean, uh, we have had or we've just gone through the 100th anniversary of the horrors of the civil war in Kerry. Just give us some examples of what was countenanced by the National Army during this period. There's a variety of, of things and it, this, I suppose the point to be made as well is that it's it's a political as well as a military decision that this, if you like, this implicit acceptance of, of terror and the use of extrajudicial killings, these are all elements which creep into the conflict from September onwards when the, the emergency powers um, is put in place for the army which legitimises executions. There's obviously formal state executions, but then there's informal extrajudicial killings as well and they happen all across the country. It's very, very, it's very apparent in Kerry in March 1923, Noctegotial, Bally those atrocities which are happening um, in Noctegotial, you see six National Army troops killed by a trap mine and in response you have 19 anti, anti-treaty prisoners uh, murdered over the following weeks. And I suppose it's worth pointing out as well that in September 1922, you have an incident in Kerry where seven National Army troops were killed by a trap mine as well. And in response, you see one anti-treaty prisoner taken out and shot by a member of what was Michael Collins's squad. He probably would have been a member of the Dublin Guards at this stage. And Major Emmett Dalton writes to Mulcahy to say, you need to take the squad out of my area because the men under his command, despite the fact that they'd seen seven of their own colleagues killed in the trap mine, they were disgusted and they were appalled at the actions of this member of, you know, the former member of Michael Collins' squad and they threatened to mutiny if he wasn't removed. So Dalton writes and says, so these issues were in play from September onwards and it's really after Collins' death at Bay on the Blaw and after the anti-treaty army, adopt, like you said, adopt the guerrilla tactics that were prevalent in the War of Independence. That's when we see things take a very, very nasty and very sharp turn. When talking about the Civil War and its aftermath, we, we were familiar or more familiar with the National Army, I suppose. What about naval and aerial capacities of the Defence Forces during that time? Because a number of the phases or elements of the conventional war were attacks from sea. That's right. And this is very very apparent in the summer of uh, 1922 and you see the National Army do uh, three or four seaborne landings where they transport troops around the coast on different vessels. That's not yet formally known as the, the Coastal and Marine Service. That's actually established in early 1923, but those are its roots. It's incredibly important in terms of allowing the National Army to outflank the anti-treaty troops and not have to, I suppose, trek across the country in, in difficult circumstances. So they take Westport, they take Fennish, and obviously they take Cork as well. Cork is the main one, landing at Passage West. So there, it, it illustrates, I think, how important a marine service would be to the new state, thinking of fisheries protection in the future, things of like that, anti-smuggling. But 
after a few months, by the middle of 1923, Mulcahy and his senior officers have decided that the, the Coastal Marine Service, which has only just been set up, is too much of an expensive luxury. They don't see it as having as much value as it might have had. And they make the decision by the end of 1923 to actually abolish the Coastal Marine Service, which leaves, uh, leaves the state without any naval capacity until the outbreak of the Second World War, which is, uh, which is again, is an interesting decision for an island nation. It's a slightly different story with the Air Corps. The Army Air Service actually celebrated its 101st anniversary last month. That's kept in place. It's not as effective during the Civil War. It has some utility in terms of aerial spotting of troop movements or for the anti-treaty forces, but it doesn't actually do a huge amount. And it Lost an airplane. Though. Lost an airplane. They, uh, <laughs> crash landing in Kerry, uh, if I remember correctly, and the anti-treaty troops had no ability to fly it themselves, so they just burned it. Um, but they survive. The, the Air Corps survives uh, the Civil War, if you like, and they're very. They come very, very close to being abolished in 1924 again on a cost basis. But they do. They are there, and they they have survived, I suppose, for 101 years. Mm. Um, but it, it was quite interesting that the service, the, the one that did the most work, I suppose, the Coastal Service, isn't retained after the Civil War. Reducing then the size. I mean, you talked about a, a, a complement of fifty-five thousand. That's not going to be required in the nineteen twenties in uh, you know quote unquote peacetime Ireland, depending on how peace, how peaceful it was. So reducing the national army in nineteen twenty-four proved to be hugely problematic, didn't it? Very difficult on a number of factors, and I think the the primary, well, obviously, the the size of that force is not going to be needed, as you said, in peacetime. The Department of Finance is very anxious that it should be reduced because the the national army has cost the state, or it's had a budget of about seventeen point nine million between nineteen twenty two and nineteen twenty three. Now that's reduced to one million by the end of the decade. So there's a very very precipitous decline in terms of the funding that's available for what becomes the defence forces, and that's again that's that's fair enough to you. It's it's not needed for that level of expenditure, but. The problems it causes is that you have from mid-1923 to March 1924, there's more than 30,000 men demobilised, which causes issues in terms of employment. What jobs are there for them? There are none. Any attempts that are set up by the Minister for Defence, you know, in concert with the Department of Industry and Commerce to find jobs for these people, they're very, they're very ineffective. And you have huge unemployment problems around the country as a result. You also have men who are being demobilised who see themselves as having given the state huge service, not just during the Civil War, but prior to that as well, during the 1916 Rising, during the War of Independence. And they're more than a little bit disgruntled at being set aside. And this mostly comes from the officer corps, a lot of officer corps, some of whom would have been very prominent with Michael Collins. And then as the Civil War progressed, are shunted into positions where they they don't have as much power and they don't have as much say in the direction of the National Army. And it's done for a number of reasons. Some of them were operating out of Oriel House as well, which was infamous during the Civil War as a place where anti-treaty prisoners were taken, beaten, where a lot of the extrajudicial killings would have originated from. So they're seen as unfit for professional military service and they're shunted aside. And they in early 1923 set up the old IRA organisation. Tobin and Dalton. Tobin and Dalton, exactly. They set up the, the old IRA uh, organisation to, I suppose, put forward the, the, the case that they're being shunted aside unfairly. Now, uh, moving then on into the, into the 1930s, and obviously, as you can tell from the figures that you just came out with, 18 million to 1 million by the end of the, you know, by the, end of the decade, the defence forces are in a pretty poor state when Europe goes to war or when Europe is on the brink of war. There's a report that says the state's ability to mount a credible defence of its territory is non-existent. Can you expand on that? Who, who compiles that report? That's Dan Bryan. I think he's a commandant at this stage. He'd go on to be the head of the of intelligence services yeah, during, during the emergency. Well, he compiles a report in 1936. And at this stage, it's, it's very apparent that the, the clouds of war are 
gathering in Europe and there's a, a quest within the Defence Force to figure out how do we prepare for this conflict and how do we prepare for a potential invasion. And what you'd seen throughout the 1920s is just this gradual lessening in importance for the National Army, uh, the Defence Forces, but also in terms of the resources that are being made available to it. Personnel numbers are dropping slowly but steadily from about 14,000 in March 1924 to just over 5,000 in 1931. So that's the lowest number, I think, in in the history of the Defence Forces. Um, So you have a, a situation in place where as Dan Bryan points out, there's no credible threat deterrent here for any kind of invasion whatsoever. The mechanisation of the artillery has been very, very slow. So artillery is still mostly drawn by horses. Um, there's no armoured cars. There's no tank facilities. The Air Corps has obsolete and or aircraft that are unsuitable for the kind of needs. And that was a, a huge problem, I think, for the Air Corps from the mid-1930s onwards. They had no policy in place, no plan. And this is a, a problem from the general staff. And a lot of the issues that the general staff give out about are, are to do with resources and funding. But their own decisions, their own policy decisions occasionally were creating problems for themselves. And the Air Corps was the obvious one because they were buying planes which were suitable for reconnaissance or for bombing runs rather than aerial defence. Mm. Was there a sigh of relief in 1938 and perhaps a degree of astonishment as well when the treaty reports were handed back? I don't think there was ever any question, certainly at the time, that that wouldn't have happened. And it, obviously, it's it's a part of part of the resolution of the economic war as well. And what it does actually for the defence forces, and, and they make the point, is that they don't have the men or the resources to actually man these ports. So mm. they have to; they're being spread even thinner than they would have been at the time. And they're also having to come to to man facilities that they have, but they still don't have a naval service. They don't have anybody who has any experience in manning these kinds of weapons, the kind of long range naval guns that were available in places like Spike Island as well. Now, 1924, 55,000, that goes down to about 13,000 uh, at the, the eve of, the, of World War II. It trebles within about a period of a year or so. Yeah, by, by the summer of 1942, you have two divisions available to the Defence Force. They have about 42,500 men in uniform and they have another 100,000 plus in the local Defence Forces and similar other kind of reserve organisations. And that's, again, we, we suppose for the second time within 20 years, you have this incredible organisation. What are they armed with, shooters? They had managed to secure some weapons and they had managed to procure quite a few from, from Britain. Now, Britain wouldn't supply the Defence Forces with the aircraft that it asked for. It wouldn't supply them with the armoured cars, it wouldn't supply them with the tanks or any of that that kind of equipment. But guns and and ammunition were more readily procured. And in fairness, the Defence Force and the government in late 1938 had realised, the government in particular, had realised that there was a major issue here in terms of supply and had begun to, panic buy is not the right word, but they had begun to uh, try to stockpile weapons. Of course, at that stage, the British, who are their main suppliers for all equipment, are starting to cut off supply lines because they realised we're going to need this for ourselves. Uh, one of the areas that I think perhaps was uh, under-researched or has been under-researched in the past and that you bring out here is that it, during the, the Second World War, essentially the Irish army is aligned to and structured like the British army and there is a lot of collaboration despite Ireland's neutrality. Well, there's a policy decision taken very early in 1925 that the Defence Forces would develop along the same lines professionally and, and organisationally and structurally as the British forces. And that's as much to do with politics and geography as it is to do with any other idea that sourcing arms, sourcing equipment from America would be too expensive. Britain were quite willing to be a supplier to the defence forces. So that helps to inform that particular policy. And it means that, as you said, in the Second World War, there's potential there for collaboration. Now, 
the diplomatic situation means that tensions between Ireland and Great Britain, especially after Churchill comes to power in May 1940, the diplomatic relations are at perhaps their lowest ebb for a long time. And that means that collaboration between the Defence Forces and the British Army is relatively relatively low. But in, in the summer of 1940, the British Army and the general staffs of the two forces had set up the 18th Military Mission, um, which was created to coordinate any kind of information exchanges and collaboration between the two forces. That's incredibly important from about late 1941 onwards when the diplomatic tensions between the two E's after America enters the Second World War and you begin to see vast information exchanges and part of that is there's eight very, very lengthy and detailed questionnaires submitted by the British over the course of late 1941 into early 1943 asking, seeking information from the Defence Forces about how well we're disposed, where are our weaknesses, where are our strong points. Some of that information is fudged so that we, because we want to conceal some of the weaknesses that we do have, but at the same time, there's permission given to the British Army to stockpile, for example, 200,000 gallons of petrol in Carton House in case they have to come over the border down the coast and support us in for any German invasion. And it's, I suppose, the level of cooperation that is there is far greater than it would probably has been realised to date so far. One of the things that always disturbed me whenever I saw photographs of Irish army personnel during the Second World War, during what we called the emergency, was the Wehrmacht helmets, the German army helmets. That's right, that's the style, the, the style helmet. That's there until, but they, they get rid of that in 1940. Right. And they they moved to they moved to a, a, a less easily recognised German helmet, and that it's again that's a cost issue, and it's actually funny because that those helmets are adopted in the late nineteen twenties, and they, they trial a French helmet, and they trial a British helmet, and they trial a German helmet, so they stick with the the German coal scuttle mm. style helmet, and they adopt that in the late nineteen twenties. So a lot of the publicity photos, like you said, you yeah. see. Irish soldiers with German helmets on yeah. their head. They have to get rid of those in 1940. But they were actually manufactured by Vickers in Britain throughout the 1930s. So it's, they're, they're German-style helmets manufactured by the British and worn by worn by Irish personnel <laughs> up until 1940. They, they definitely would send a shiver down your spine, though. Um, so after then the Second World War, after the, the emergency, I suppose the Irish, the, the Defence Forces then begin to come into their own again in 1958 or thereabouts. And that's associated with the United Nations and Ireland at last being admitted to the United Nations. Yeah, it's a transformational moment for for the Defence Forces because in the same way that the aftermath of the Civil War had seen the Defence Forces just in this precipitous decline, you have the same situation happen after the Second World War and you go from... um, you know, there's, there's an establishment number of 12,500 personnel agreed as being the level. By the mid-1950s, that's dropped down to 10,000. The establishment number hasn't changed, but it's dropped down to about 10,000 and, and even lower by, by the end of the 1950s. So the investments isn't there. And it, despite promises from de Valera that the Defence Forces wouldn't be allowed to wither on the vine, and that's a phrase that's used by a, a chief of staff who recalls being commissioned in the 1950s. He says that the Defence Forces were allowed to wither on the vine in the 1950s. That changes after we joined the UN in 1955. That opens the the possibility of joining this new, I suppose, this new concept of a peacekeeping mission. And when the request comes in in the summer of 1958 for us to join the United Nations Observer Group in the Lebanon or UNIGIL, the Defence Forces jumps at it. So the initial request is for five officers. And the one that's, I suppose, best remembered is Justin McCarthy. He he was on the fast track for UN, a UN promotion. He was a particularly competent officer and he was very, very highly regarded. He unfortunately dies in a car crash in 1960, but he was on a very steep rise through the UN ranks. But that at that stage, we had 50 officers 
working with Unigil um, by the end of 1958 and a lot of those are transferred to work with ONUC um, when ONUC is formed in, in 1960 and that's when the Defence Forces really, I suppose, embraces or is asked to embrace the concept of peacekeeping missions. And of course the Congo then is a baptism of fire from uh, from 1958, 1959, 19, well 1960 onwards but the the, uh, the first operation was in was in Lebanon, 1960 is the, the Congo. That the, yeah the and, and the Lebanon fire. operation I suppose it's, it's very much an observer mission. There are officers there working in, in Lebanon and in Beirut. They're not really involved in, I suppose, what you call frontline action, whereas that changes in, in Congo. And when the request comes in for a battalion, the defence forces, they're a, they're a little bit wary because at this stage there's 8,000 or so personnel in the defence forces, which again is very, very low compared to what the establishment was supposed to be. And the request is for 600 men to go across to. So that's a large proportion. There's a second battalion sent over in August of 1960. So you have two battalions on the ground, two Irish battalions on the ground in Congo by the end of 1960. It's more than 17% of the actual defence forces in total are in Congo. So that puts a huge strain on the defence forces. It means that the units that are sent over, they're not cohesive units. They're not one infantry battalion. They're cobbled together from around the country. That leads to issues in terms of cohesion, that kind of thing. Their equipment isn't great. They're armed with obsolete Second World War rifles. They wear this famous bull's wool uniform that they wear over, which is not in any way suitable for a tropical climate. So in terms of preparation, in terms of those things, the, the Defence Forces are at a bit of a disadvantage, but they're, they're told that this is, this is a, an important part of our, I suppose, our, our foreign relations. And that has its own consequences as well. And in terms of, in terms of I suppose, preparation for the kind of action and the kind of um, missions that they would be required to fulfil as, as things go on. And they suffer significant casualties. I think 26 soldiers, not all of them killed, killed in action. And you have these evocative names that remain with us to this day. Niemba, Jadaville. Were, for example, that were the Jadaville soldiers, were they treated very shabbily? Very shabbily afterwards. And it's, it's one of the, I suppose, one of the stains on, on, and one of the black sort of moments for the, for the defence forces, actually, in terms of the way those, those soldiers were treated after they came home. And it's obviously an ongoing and live issue um, um, for them. So... There was a huge misunderstanding in the public, although I think that the general staff were probably much better informed as to the actual nature of the fighting. But the the fact that they held out for as long as they did and were, uh, I suppose, as effective in, in terms of what they were doing was a testament, I suppose, to Pat Quinlan and to the men that he had under his command. I think it was 150 or so. That's in September, September and October of 1961. It's a part of Operation Morthor, which is a, a UN-wide operation to bring Katanga, which is a, a province that's trying to secede from the mm. Congo, back into the Congo itself. And that's, there's other missions happening across uh, Katanga and across Congo as a part of Operation Morthor. It leads into the Battle of the Tunnel and the Battle for Elizabethville in, in late 1961. And 36 Infantry Battalion are dispatched to Congo. I think it's December 1961. And they actually take fire as they're landing. They're the, I think they have the distinction of being the only Irish unit to take fire as they're actually be, being deployed. And they're deployed immediately into a battle zone, including the Battle for the Tunnel, where three Irish personnel were killed during the fighting for that part of Elizabethville. And it's, it's a very intense. And um, they're the first Irish troops to be under fire since the Civil War and it's a very intense period for the Defence Forces and there's a huge amount of I suppose lessons that are learned from it and you mentioned Niemba that Niemba happens at the end of in November 1960 and very soon afterwards you see Irish troops that are deployed are deployed with armoured personnel carriers which they didn't have initially in, uh, when they went over in the summer of 1960 they're deployed with Gustav machine, submachine guns some of them would have had them when they went over in 1960 but it becomes much more common and there's a sense that the defence forces needs to it needs to have sufficient investment to be able to equip its personnel 
properly for these kinds of missions. Um, how does the or how do the defence forces respond to the troubles then, in uh, from nineteen sixty nine onwards? There's a couple of different factors in that, and you know you have Jack Lynch's famous speech that you know they will not stand by in, in August nineteen sixty nine, and when the troubles begin to you know, the, the situation continues to deteriorate. And in, in February 1970, Jim Gibbons, who's the Minister for Defence, tasks the general staff with coming up with a plan for potential incursions by the Defence Forces into the north to protect Catholic and nationalist populations. And the general staff sends back a report which says, we have limited, we, have, we don't have the combat effectivity to be able to do that. We don't have the personnel, we don't have the resources, and we don't have the weapons required to do that. And what you see then develop over the next two or three years is, I mean, in the immediate aftermath, you have Catholic and nationalist populations streaming across the border into into the Republic um, seeking refuge. They're accommodated in Gormanson Camp and Finner Camp in Donegal and County Meath in Donegal. Um, you also have then Defence Forces personnel deployed to the border. And there there is a lot of, I suppose, rumour that they are actually going to go across the border. That's never a viable political or military uh, option for the Defence Forces or the government at this time. But you do have four infantry groups which are stationed then on the border from 1970 onwards. A bit like in Congo, they're cobbled together, they're drawn together from different parts of the country. So there's, again, a lack of cohesion. And there's an internal report put together in 1971 which says this is a huge problem for us because these guys are being pulled together from different parts of the country. They don't have the training for it and we need to have specific or, or proper infantry groups set up for this, which means in 1973 you have 27th, 28th and 29th infantry battalions formed specifically for border border duties. The presence, the, the Defence Force's presence above... I suppose there's a line above Gormanston and Galway that if you draw a line directly across the country, the only permanent presence they have above that is in Finner Camp. That changes. By the end of the 1970s, there's 11. Um, new barracks are built for the first time in the history of the state, including places like Monaghan. Mm-hmm. So that kind of response is is indicative of the stress and the threat that was being or being sort of um, seen from, from the north. And you also have personnel numbers again. You know, they're indicative of crisis investment in the Defence Forces at different times. You have... Again, you go from 8,000 in 1969 to just under 15,000 by 1977. Mm. Um, now, it's a it's a beautifully produced book, lots of wonderful photographs, and uh, you don't ignore some of the, I suppose, less well-known aspects of the Defence Forces, the School of Music, the Equestrian School, and also the long association between the Defence Forces and the movie industry. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the Defence Forces on the silver screen. Yeah, it's actually, with a book like this, and when you're dealing with a century's worth of history, very often I had to write in fairly broad brushstrokes. But working in military archives, which is, which I'm sure you know well, it's an incredible, incredible repository, and they have an unbelievable wealth of information there. Mm. And I'd very often find myself going down these rabbit holes <laughs> and going into the details of, of different elements and different parts of, of the Defence Forces. And as I was writing the book, I realised I, I didn't have room for these in the main narrative. So what I wanted to do was come up with these little inserts in between the main chapters where I could talk about those things mm. that you mentioned, like the, the School of Music, the Equestrian School. And one of them is, is the Defence Forces on the silver screen. And I was just fascinated with that because when I was, you know, in the 90s when I was a teenager you would see the FCA on screen with in Braveheart and in Saving Private Ryan. And they're the ones that people think about when they think of the Defence Force being involved in the movie industry. But actually it's golden age in Hollywood terms is in the 1950s and 1960s. And there's actually a government-wide directive to all parts of the government, all parts of the civil service to facilitate in any way they can any Hollywood studio that comes over and asks for assistance. And the Defence Forces are asked for personnel and men on a regular basis from the mid-1950s right up until the 1970s. So there's this long period, about 17 or 18 years, and you have movies like 
the Blue Max, which is a First World War set, which has the details, the exploits of a, of a German mm. pilot, and that's filmed in and around George Baldano. Pepper. I think, that's right, exactly yeah, right. Yeah, 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 more well known to me from the A Team. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed. Um, and you have another film called Darling Lily, which has Rock Hudson and uh, Julie Andrews in mm. it, and they're drawn to Ireland for a couple of reasons. One, there's uh, there's some tax breaks, but also Lynn. Lynn Gardner, I think his, his name was, he was a Canadian stunt pilot. He set up a, or he maintained a fleet of First World War era airplanes uh, in Western Aerodrome down in, in Leakslip. So they're hugely attractive as uh, as props for, for a lot of these movies. Um, so you just have this period and it causes all sorts of issues. It's great in some ways because they... You know, you have personnel getting extra pay, and these people are making uh, the, the studios are making contributions to the army's benevolent fund, so they're funding you know um, charitable endeavors. But you also have problems in terms of training, and and the fact that in, for a couple of these movies, I think it's it's Darling Lily. There's up to a thousand defense forces personnel required at different times, and it interrupts annual training. In 1967, annual training has to be moved from. Fort Dunree to Linan in Galway because that's where the movie requires the men for filming and Sean McGowan who's the chief of staff at the time he writes to the Minister for Defence and says this is hugely problematic I'm sending these men to I think it was it was Unfasip to Cyprus and I can't train them properly and they're going to go be sent abroad and we need to have them available for training and he's told no the directive is to keep the, the, the movie studios the soft, happy The soft power is more important exactly, than the hard yeah. power Yeah. Um, finally you have you've benefited from uh, a number of interviews with uh, soldiers, sailors, pilots the Military Archives Oral History Project Yeah and, it, and again it was, an, it was an idea that I had when I started out with the book was that we would draw upon that to give you know to, to just have some transcripts and some excerpts from those interviews to give people a sense of the kind of work that the Defence Forces do and, and, and that as personnel have experienced. And as I sat down, I started listening to these and a lot of them are, are compiled by um, Corporal Michael Whelan of the, the Air Corps Museum and, and by Military Archives' own staff, Noah Growth here and, and people like that who, who've done incredible work in terms of bringing these, I suppose, these stories and putting them on tape and preserving them for the future. As I listened to them, I realised these are, there are mine of information, but they also give you this kind of visceral sense of the kind of work that the people are doing that you can't get from a document. You can't mm. get it from any other kind of source. So I trans- uh, we put in a, a larger than I had anticipated section, which would had some of these in it. And you know, we have Maria O'Donoghue, who was one of the first four women cadets who entered the I think the Corps in March 1980 for to begin her training. We have Tom Croke, who has this very very harrowing account of a rescue of an attempted rescue of two boys who were trapped on Paris Court Waterfall and he's flying one of those you know, iconic Alouette helicopters. At the time, he gives a really interesting account of that. Michael Waltz talks about serving overseas with, with Goal um, during the Rwandan massacre and it's, you know, I found that very difficult to listen to because he's talking about the logistics of burying up to 3,000 bodies a day, trying to provide medical attention to children um, and he had his own children at home and at one point he's asked to put a particular type of stitch or a particular type of needle into a child's arm and he says... I don't know how to do this. And the nurse says to him, he's going to die anyway. And he said that really brought her home to him, the gravity of the situation that they were in. And in terms, of, I suppose, the, the Defence Force's own military operations or as part of its its peacekeeping work, the Michael Jones, who's a, a recipient of the Military Medal for Gallantry, he received that at a place called Atiri in, in Lebanon in April 1980. And he just gives an account of the days where there's a, a confrontation between the 
the de facto forces and in Lebanon and the, the UN troops and he talks about what it was like to be serving under fire and the rescue mission that he and, and a colleague did to earn the MMG and it, again it just brings home and he he at the end towards the end of it he starts to break down a little bit with the emotion of it and again for me listening to it I just hope that the transcripts that we have on the page kind of capture the I suppose the, the stress the strain but also just the the intensity of a lot of the work that these people have done uh, in the past for overseas. It's a tremendous resource and of course it's an ongoing Absolutely, resource yeah. as well. It's still being done still. These interviews are still being recorded. Owen Kinsler, thank you very much for joining us on the History Show this evening to talk about your new book, The Irish Defence Forces 1922-2022, to Servant of the Nation, published by Four Courts Press. Thanks very much, Miles. After the break, I'll be joined by Mary Muldowney to talk about the Irish writer Robert Tressel. Stay with us. Born in Dublin in 1870, Robert Noonan, better known under his pen name of Robert Tressel, was the author of The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. That book, which remained unpublished during Tressel's lifetime, would become a pivotal text for generations of trade unionists and socialists after it became widely available in the second half of the 20th century. A forthcoming festival would explore the life and legacy of Tressel, a figure who's often overlooked in discussions of Irish writers. To learn more, I'm joined by Mary Muldowney, festival organiser and historian in residence with Dublin City Council. Mary, thanks for joining us again on the History Show. Tell us a little bit about his early life and uh, the Irish connection. Unfortunately, the Irish connection is actually not as strong as it might have been. A lot of people thought he grew up in Dublin, but he certainly was born here. He was here for the first few years of his life and his parents were Irish. He was brought to London probably when he was about five or six. But I'm sure that, you know, like most Irish people abroad, that it would have been mentioned fairly frequently about the background. There's some controversy as to who exactly his father was. Yeah, I mean, there's more discussion about it now than there might have been in, you know, early days of after the book was published. He was claimed by Samuel Croker, who was a judge. But Croker at the time that Trussell was born was in his 80s. And he was married to somebody else that, other than Trussell's mother, Marianne Noonan. And they had four children together. The suspicion is that really it's far more likely that it was Croker's son who was the father of Noonan's children. Because the Croker family continued to pay support and provide financial aid to, to Marianne and to Robert. Yeah, they were pretty decent, actually, in the way they looked after them. You know, for the time, it was easy enough to disown people born outside the blanket. Uh, so... That is unfortunately just speculation. We've no direct evidence of it. And the older Croker certainly never tried to disown his children or his grandchildren. Um, Now, Mary Noonan remarried then in uh, London. So take his life from there, if you would, up to... uh, We'll discuss South Africa separately, but uh, this period of his life after he leaves Dublin. Well, certainly he turns up in Liverpool where he spent a few months in prison for petty theft. So he was having an exciting time. We don't have much detail. There's been some excellent work done, but the records don't back up an awful lot of what he was up to. And then, as you say, he turns up in South Africa a few years later and he claimed in his various official 
forms that his last place of residence had been Ireland. But really, that looks like he might have been just avoiding saying about yeah. his uh, residence in Liverpool jail. In prison, yeah. Um, so he decided to emigrate. He's a, a painter and decorator, yeah. um, famously, and decides to emigrate to South Africa. And when he's in South Africa, that is when he certainly becomes, whether he was involved beforehand, but mm. he certainly becomes involved in politics. Tell us about his, his life and activities there, if you would. Well, the the major activity, I suppose, in terms of profile would have been his involvement with the anniversary of the 1798 rebellion, which was being organised by luminaries like Arthur Griffith and John McBride, whom that Trestle was reasonably close to. There was a major event in 1898 to mark the centenary. And he also was involved with the local trades council, but not necessarily as a trade union member. And that's where it's a little bit iffy because a lot of the preoccupation with his activities there was in making sure that black skilled workers couldn't impinge on the the rights or the jobs of white skilled workers. Now, he did move away from that position when he moved away from South Africa, but it's not appealing. Mm. Uh, He was familiar, apparently, anyway, with the, maybe around this time, with the works of people like James Connolly and Michael Dabbitt, wasn't he? He was. You know, there are suggestions, especially through the chapters of the Ragged Trousered Philosophy, of Davitt's work in particular. So, you know, adapting those arguments, it's possible that he was influenced in Connolly's direction by McBride because Griffith wouldn't have necessarily been (laughs) urging that kind of thinking. But he certainly was becoming very politically aware and he was on the Boer side in the war that started in 1899. So now he, he... apparently was involved in the setting up of an Irish brigade, but didn't actually fight. But he was also somebody who had been tormented by poor health mm. most of his life. So, And he had, at that stage, separated from his wife and he had custody of their daughter. Yeah, the daughter is somebody who is actually very important in mm. his life. And when he leaves South Africa in September 1901, she goes with him. That's right, yeah. Kathleen, her name was, and they were clearly very close. And when they came back to England, they moved to Hastings, where he had sister, one sister living and another one coming with them. Kathleen's references to the details of his life are a lot, that would have been what most of the early knowledge was based on. But there were clearly what he told her and he did change the story several <laughs> times. So, um, you know, subsequent research has shown that it's not the most reliable source for information. Now, he, as you say, the, the, he and Kathleen moved to Hastings on the south, south coast of England. Mm. And in 1906, he begins work on the manuscript of yeah. the ragged trousered philanthropists and bases it to some extent or to a considerable extent on his own experience and his own experience of working for a building company locally. Yeah, I mean, Hastings 
the one thing that has been, attention's been drawn to that is kind of not inconsistent with him talking about working class life is that he's really, he wasn't a member of a union himself. There would have been trade union activity in Hastings. Jobs were falling off to some extent at that stage. But it seems that Noonan or Drassel was doing okay. I mean, there's a great piece by Charles Callan that he wrote 20 odd years ago now, but it traces all of that and the lack of evidence that he actually was in a trade union. So it throws some doubt on how faithful a portrait of working class life it was. I mean, to a great extent it was, but organisation through unions would have been very strong at the time. Uh, he doesn't put the name Robert Noonan on the manuscript. Uh, he comes up with this name, Robert Tressel. Was that to yeah. avoid potential retribution? I wouldn't think so. I think that he was, you know, a Tressel was a key tool, mm. the Tressel table of a painter and decorator, which is how he described himself. So I suspect he really was just trying to give himself a pseudonym that would have relevance to what he was writing about. Sadly, he had no luck getting a publisher. I mean, he has produced his manuscript. It's taken him four years to write. It's 1,700 pages long. Yeah. So you can sympathise. a manuscript, yeah. you know, well, no yeah, typing or anything. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can sympathise with uh, publishers who said, no, thank you. Well, they don't take a risk that easily unless it's an obvious, you know, bestseller. And it can be a tough enough read <laughs> nowadays. But the thing was that... While he apparently threatened to destroy the manuscript because he was so disillusioned, uh, Kathleen saved it and kept it in a tin box until after his death. And it was she who saw that it was sold. Now, probably not in the best circumstances in that she was paid only £25, which even at the day wasn't Mm. all that much for the amount of work that went into it. But at least it got out there. About 1914? 1914 was the first publication, but it was a very abridged version by a woman called Jessie Pope. And the unabridged version um, that is published in 1955, how did that come about? Well, there had been various iterations through the intervening years and each one had a bit more of the original manuscript, which thankfully had managed to have been saved. I mean, it had been sold and sold again, but a man called Fred Ball went after it in the 1940s and he and his wife literally restored a lot of the pages. Now, Ball wrote what's accepted as a very scrupulous biography, but not necessarily the most accurate, because he would have been talking a lot to Kathleen. But at the same time, it's a much bigger insight into who Noonan Tressel was and the intentions for the book. Mm. Uh, Now, that legacy you're going to explore in the Robert Tressel Festival, which you describe as a day of debate, drama and song. Give us an idea of what's going to be happening at the event. Well, in the day, which is completely free and open to anyone who wants to drop in in Connolly Hall in Liberty Hall, there will be four separate sessions that are based on different aspects of the book and the arguments around it. So uh, we'll have a welcome in the morning, kick off then with a section on the history of the book and what it's meant in terms of different groups. 
for instance, women in particular, uh, Lisa Connell's going to talk about the gender and Charles Callan, I'm very glad to say, is going to speak. And Brian McMahon will be in that one as well. He's done the most recent book, Robert Drassel, Dubliner, followed by, and this will be a feature of the day, songs about labour, you know, labour songs, hopefully <laughs> inspiring. Mm. And organising for a better world is going to be a very important one because organising, especially younger people and migrant workers, etc., is a big thing, very important for unions. We have Eddie Dempsey and John Callow coming from the UK. Eddie Dempsey is the deputy to Mick Lynch, the RMT, and John Callow is a historian who's a specialist in Connolly's writing. But he's also somebody who can speak to the enormous influence that the book has had in Britain especially. That's followed by an explanation of the great money trick, which is Tressel's explanation of how capitalism works, but with various (laughs) economists. And finally, organising for unity, which will deal with really an issue that is so important nowadays that was an issue then. And it was kind of reflected how Tressel had moved on in his thinking, which is to stop blaming migrants for what's wrong with our society. Um, So it will be about diversity, particularly around the issue of race. And the evening then, well, not just Mick Lynch, we have Philney Hay giving a keynote speech as Deputy Secretary, General Secretary of ICTU, and various other people like Seamus McDonough, who is the chair of the organising committee, and he'll be speaking to the elected president of SIPTU, who represents a lot of people, Mary O'Donnell. And we will have the say a lot of music in that session. Dara Lynch from Lancome is a big fan of Mick Lynch and uh, apparently they're not related, but, mm. you know, he particularly wants to be on the stage with them. And, you know, it's just generally, hopefully, that the evening will be a reminder, as Mick says, the working class is back. You know, that uh, people say, well, where did they go? They didn't go anywhere. But at the same time, over the 20th century and more recently, they've been... Downtrodden to Interesting a great to have Mick Lynch coming kind of in the opposite direction from uh, from Robert Tressel, stroke Robert Noonan, who who emigrated uh, to, to to London. Yes, so Mick Lynch yeah. coming in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. albeit for uh, for twenty four hours or yeah. so. Many thanks for joining us on the History Show this evening to talk about Robert Tressel and the upcoming Robert Tressel Festival to be held in Liberty Hall on Saturday, the sixth of May. And details can be found at Tressel Festival. That's T R E S S E L L. He didn't spell it T R E S T L E. <laughs> as in Jesse the table <laughs> yeah. so dresselfestival.ie well that's all we've got time for on this evening's programme and indeed all we've got time for on this season of the History Show we'll be back in the autumn with another run of episodes details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show my thanks tonight to Kieran Dunn and Harry Buckless on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly the history show is a Pegasus production for RTE for now for me Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy goodbye and thanks for listening <laughs>